When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Oh What a Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was as awful as it seems. I'm Tom Crane. I'm Chris Skull. I'm Ellis James. Each week on this show we'll be looking at a new historical subject and today we're going to be discussing your friend and mine, humour. From chiselled gags in ancient Egypt to fart jokes in ancient Greece, plus the kind of one-liners you were likely to hear in the Soviet Union. Very lucky that we're looking at humour with three of humour's experts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you couldn't find three better people to discuss this, but please don't try. It's my safe place, humour. It's where I feel yeah, yeah. most relaxed. Yeah, it's why you're so emotionally distant, Tom, and you can't talk to your wife properly because you're obsessed with humour. That's why Claire's left you, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) So, if you like humour, Ellis, you'll love the emails we've received this week because they are a hoot. They are. And most of them, 99% of them, are about Britain's hottest format point. (laughs) One day time machine. Play the jingle. It's the one day time machine. 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 Would you like to hear... Yet another suggestion on the theme of one-day time machine. Ellis, do you want to quickly explain to listeners who may not be au fait with what that is, what is this brilliant format? You've got a time machine, but rather than going back to a period, we're making it far less general than that, far more specific. You get to go back to a specific day. So you've got a day wherever you want. It could be a day in ancient Rome. It can be uh, a day in medieval Britain. Who knows, right? That is completely up to you. And also the rules, crucially, are up to you. Can you fit in? Do you fit in? Are you a ghost? Are you a coffee table? Very few people taking the coffee table option. <laughs> no one, actually, bizarrely. <laughs> you never see any time travel films about people who go back to become coffee tables. Yeah. <laughs> At what point do we uh, admit that Habitat are paying us 300 grand an episode to mention the word coffee table 15 times in the hour? <laughs> um, I'm going to start with my favourite 
possibly my favourite one we've received yet. I think it's generally quite sweet and quite moving. Now, this is by someone called Justin Bedard, who's got in contact with the show to say, Dear Ellis, Tom and Chris, I'm absolutely loving the podcast and think one day Time Machine is a brilliant idea. Justin, you are correct. If I could go back and spend one day in the past, I will travel back to France 1945. Uh, quantum leap style and spend the day with my now deceased grandfather after he was liberated from a POW camp oh, oh wow my grandfather it's cool my grandfather called Duffy by all his friends was an 18 year old tail gunner in a B-24 bomber during World War II and in early 1943 his plane was shot down over France and after two weeks evading capture he was caught by the Germans who um, if you're interested were the bad guys yeah. at that point <laughs> This is a history podcast. <laughs> I wonder how many of our listeners are like, what? <laughs> so he then spent the next two years in a POW camp, Stalag 17. He was eventually liberated as the Germans were marching the POWs through Austria. And after he was liberated, and I love this, while being transported back to France to be eventually taken back to the USA, he realised he may never get to see Europe again. And he deserved a bit of fun after being a prisoner. So he and a couple of friends stole an army truck a 50 gallon drum of dried egg donuts and then proceeded to joy joyride throughout france wow i would jump back into the body of one of his compatriots spend the day with my then 20 year old grandfather joy rounding around france getting to know him as a young man and i'd jump out right before they were caught by the military police <laughs> i like that point. that is incredible how cool he also said um, he also says my grandfather has the dubious distinction of being one of the few liberated pow's who was marched onto the boat taking him back to the usa in leg irons and handcuffs wow. due to his tendency to commandeer military equipment and joyride through the countryside he did it multiple times keep up the good work gentlemen cheers james bedard how cool is that very cool gotta be honest using one day time machine the world's hottest format point to go back and spend time with your now deceased grandfather is so much sweeter more edifying and thoughtful than my idea of being an edwardian coffee table for 12 hours (laughs) (laughs) Beginning to look, sort of, this made me really look at my own choices. That one. I thought, oh, God, yeah. Have, have you even thought about what sort of scene you'd be part of, Ellis, as that coffee table? Have you thought about what sort of room are you sat in in Edwardian times? What are we, what are we looking Dra- at Drawing here? room, uh, drawing room, uh, a couple of uh, copies of Punch magazine on top of me. <laughs> it, being an, an inanimate object is my idea of hell. <laughs> at last someone says it, Chris. At last someone says it. <laughs> Like, if you remember at the end of Being John Malkovich, where they're trapped in his head? What was that? The end of Being John Malkovich is that they're trapped in John Malkovich's head, but they've, they, and right. they can perceive everything that John Malkovich can see, but they have no power to control John Malkovich. So they're just trapped in someone else's consciousness yeah. for, all, for all time. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. difference between that and, uh, and I, I have to say it because of the, uh, the contract <laughs> we signed with Habitat, and being a Habitat coffee table... <laughs> Is that obviously a Habitat coffee table is just so aesthetically pleasing. And of course, of course, people can also go onto the Habitat website and use the discount code inanimate for time travel. <laughs> Don't try that. It will not work. Charlotte Smith has also emailed the show. Slightly less sweet sentiment. Well, it kind of, it kind of starts in kind of a sweet way. Hi, Ellis, Tom and Chris. First of all, I've been loving the podcast so much. Thank you so much for all your hard work. She listens to it in Habitat, doesn't she? From what I understand, I've, I've read this email as well. <laughs> I'm getting in touch about a day in history I'd like to go back to. As a history lover, it's something I thought about a lot and I'd always thought I'd want to be in Berlin on the 9th of November 1989 to see the fall of the Berlin Wall. However, I've realised an even greater iconic event happened in the same place the next month. I now think I'd use my day to be at the Berlin Wall on the 31st of December 1989 to watch David Hasselhoff belting out looking for freedom. I'm not a massive David Hasselhoff fan, 
But the look of pure joy and confusion on the faces of thousands of Germans makes me want to get involved. I tried to fit in wearing my own light-up jacket and keyboard <laughs> scarf to match the Hoff. Because this must have been the only New Year's Eve in history that wasn't a massive letdown. Thanks again for a great podcast, Charlotte. So that's oh. where she'd go. David Hasselhoff, Berlin Wall. The Hoff. Thoughts? That's a great, that's a great choice. I've, I vividly remember the 31st of December 1989. Why is that? Because I was allowed to stay up to watch Clive James's review of the 1980s. So you you were obsessed with the 80s, <laughs> even as it was ending. Yeah, yeah. You knew I'm going to spend the rest of my life reading about this period. Which end? There's not a book about the 80s I won't read. <laughs> I am absolutely... Fa- I said the other day, I said on uh, uh, last week's episode, I think, when we were discussing the world's hottest format point, at what point could I go back where I could definitely fit in. And a lot of people have laughed at me for saying 1993. The idea that I <laughs> I would, I know too much to fit in in 1992. And I would just yeah. give the game away. People like, that guy is not from around here. He's from the future. I am endlessly fascinated by the, 19, by the 1980s. But also the end of the, the 1980s, the end of the Cold War and stuff. That had dominated mm. people's lives for over 50 years. It just felt huge it felt massive and then david hasselhoff turned up <laughs> and ushered in a new era <laughs> the guy from night rider every like all that tussles in the end of the second world war until 1990 just trying to figure out how one side could win the cold war inventing ever greater more powerful atomic bombs and all it took was the hoff yeah 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 exactly and he hadn't even had his biggest tv success at that point <laughs> he was two years away from paywatch <laughs> So, if you have any suggestions for One Day Time Machine, be they moving, be they ridiculous, be they coffee coffee table table based, based. wow, look at that! Do contact the show, and here is how you do it. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and... You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oh What A Time Pod. Now, clear off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week I'll be talking about humour in the Soviet Union and why it was so surprisingly funny. I'll be talking about chiselled gags in ancient Egypt. I'm going to talk to you guys today about comedy in ancient Greece and its influence on comedy throughout the world. Okay, so the first clue... And you're influenced, aren't you, as a comedy writer? You're quite influenced by the work of the ancient Greeks. Hugely. I'm pitching stuff in Greek as well. It's getting absolutely nothing. But I'm such... I'm so, you know... I think it's such a pure art, ancient Greek comedy. I'm going to stick with it. You've you've done a little bit of research on ancient Greek comedy. Do you think there's anything that you've seen that you're like, I could steal that and I could get that on the last leg? I could get some of Britain's top comedians to say this. Because it's thousands of years old. And the only, the only, with the greatest respect, 
the yeah. only people who know that you've pinched it from the ancient Greeks will probably not be watching The Last Leg, will they? They'll be at, that, they'll be reading the London... The Long they'll Dead. Be either, either Long Dead or reading the London <laughs> Review books by, by the fireside. Well, Chris, there are... It's interesting you, you ask that because there's some jokes I'm going to sort of test on you guys later from ancient Greece, and some of them do... They do kind of still hold up now, and that's what's interesting about it. And this is the influence that ancient Greek comedy had and has on comedy today. It's basically shaped what we know to be comedy today. So the first clue that ancient Greece would have this effect is that the word comedy comes from ancient Greeks. It's a combination of the words komos, which is to revel, and oid, which is to ode, which is to sing, basically. And they were once used to describe a theatre that, in contrast to tragedy, had a happy ending. Um, can I just say, like, ancient Greece, like all these different destinations, I have to say, the entertainment in ancient Greece, I reckon, is up there. It's decent. That is a good shout, actually. Bizarrely modern. Yeah. I've been to the Theatre of Dionysus, which I think they say is the fir- the world's thir- first theatre. I've seen that. And it's actually like, this is quite nice. This is, like, better than some theatres I've been to now. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a lovely setting. I've performed at the Bristol Old Vic which is yeah. the the oldest continually operating theatre in the English-speaking world. So it was built between 1764 and 1766. And now, obviously, it's just a, it's a, it's a theatre, and you can buy revels and a Kit Kat, <laughs> you think. At some point, they will have introduced the Kit Kats to the Bristol Old <laughs> Just to check. You're saying it would have been the same time as everyone else in the UK was exposed to the Kit Kat. They didn't, they didn't trial it there. <laughs> Take a break in the interval. Have a Kit Kat. God, these people need some confectionery in the middle of this play. But you talk about old theatres, Ellis. There's, there's one thing about these theatres, which obviously, as a performer, stresses me out. Obviously, completely without a mic. It was ancient Greece, so you were just having to yell. See, these are big theatres. The thoughts on that? What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you know what I would say, though? If you perform at, especially like the old Mutcham theatres... At those old theatres, you can do, even if they're massive, you can do the sound check without a mic because the acoustically they are incredible. And then you go to a modern art centre theatre that was built in 1977, and even if you've got a mic, it sounds shit. So it's just... <laughs> like, I've, I've not been to the theatres in, sort of, in Greece, the ones that still exist, like, like Chris has, but it is extraordinary, the acoustics in an old... Victorian theatre. It might be that you project better than I do, though. I once did a corporate in a in an Indian restaurant, and someone ordered a <laughs> sizzling plate of chicken that was louder than me. I remember it coming across, and it was distracting, and I had to repeat my line. People just couldn't hear me over this sizzling chicken. So maybe maybe you've got sort of maybe you project better than I do. No, I would say in fact the opposite is true. And yes, it's damaging our relationship to the extent that probably every day. Uh, I make passive-aggressive marks uh, Twizzy saying that she needs to get her ears tested because uh, I'm humble and she's a bit deaf. And that really is a match made in hell. So what's the answer there? Well, the answer, I think, is that she gets a hearing aid or an ear trumpet like Winston Churchill. But um... <laughs> whenever I see like a picture of someone with an ear trumpet, I'm like, surely we could have come up with something better than that. Yeah. Even then, it's undignified. So I, uh, but yeah, they they would have been projecting big time in Greece. So these theatres, comedic festivals came around. So most notably, a festival called Elenaia, which came each year in Athens. Okay, and in around four two six BC, 
um, a writer called Aristophanes, who many people think is the grandfather of comedy, started to perform his plays. And these plays were so groundbreaking. There was a massive change because they celebrated ordinary people. They mocked politicians, generals and intellectuals. And these are the same people that would have been sat in the front row. So in his plays, he was taking the piss out of the most powerful people who were all sat in the front row. It was huge, a huge change in, in, in kind of satire and what theatre meant at this point. I mean, the bravery of doing that is incredible. So what you're saying is the ancient Greeks came up with the last leg. That's <laughs> they Have they seen a penny of that? Disgusting, isn't it? Now... When Aristophanes was performing these plays, uh, or having these plays performed for him, more to the point, um, there's a few of things that I think you'll probably be grateful you don't have to do now as a stand-up. Um, the outfits, for a start. Performers were performing a huge mask, a short tunic, uh, and between their legs they would always have a huge fake phallus <laughs> dangling around. <laughs> Now, would you be oh. as drawn to stand up if that was the outfit that everyone had to wear? Uh, more drawn, <laughs> if anything. Mm-hmm. What's it? Does it fulfil a purpose? Well, a lot of the humour was quite lewd. I tell you who would have cleared up: Roy Chubby Brown. Yeah, Roy yeah, Chubby yeah. Brown. There you fake, go. F- fake phallus. All those northern <laughs> comedians. Those Jethro. <laughs> Jethro was Cornwall. He was northern. <laughs> well, well, you know, anywhere outside of London. <laughs> I suppose it does slightly narrow the field of the type of comedy you can do. You can't do, go sort of heartfelt storytelling if you've got a massive no. fake dong wangling around mm. between your legs. It's going to have to be bored. Yeah. Very difficult to talk about your mental health, or easier, in a, in a mad way. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they know, they know that this was the outfit because uh, a lot of uh, Greek pots at the time have images of people with the fake dongs on, and that's the uh, the thing they had. I mean, I've, I think... Oh, you quite... think they're fake? <laughs> <laughs> this was just what you convinced yourself. Well, that's totally ridiculous. No dong can ever be that scale. It's a, they've just drawn fake ones on all these. Do you think with the ancient Greeks, like, it's such, such a base humour? And is that because they had the whole palette of comedy to work with? And they've just the stuff that's dongs and stu- like silly stuff is the most obvious things, isn't it? In the palette of comedy. Also, every now and then, there was a news story a few years ago. You know, and this this crops up every now and then that they'll think they found the oldest written joke, and it, inevitably it's a fart joke or a sort of, of or some sort of sex thing. It'll be some sort of it'll be innuendo or it'll, it'll be some sort of slightly dirty joke, and obviously comedy's changed. You know, it's unrecognisable to an ex- even from fifty years ago or a hundred years ago, but there are certain things that people find funny. It's like my kids find farting and weeing and pooing absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. As has been yeah. the case since time immemorial. So I think when you're when you're a when you're a gag writer in ancient Greece. Yeah, and you're looking at your script and you're thinking, this page is a bit gag light actually. We haven't we haven't had a on page three. We we're, we're three scenes into this play and no one's farted yet. I need to chuck some fart jokes in. Well, even with my kids, I, I rather lazily will often go for a fart joke to get a laugh from them. And I know it's just perpetuating the issue. Yeah. But I yeah, will yeah. always go for it. Of course. Who, we, any of these things, it's a guaranteed laugh. My son loves it. I mean, what an audience he would be for your inimitable brand of comedy, Tom. <laughs> now, I think one of the reasons they went for this vulgar stuff is because it was a way of humiliating those in power, basically. It was kind of capturing a humour 
of the people and it was a way of humiliating the people who were in the front row and that's what's so different to the tragedies that had come before which were also kind of reverential it was about the great success of those with wealth and all this sort of stuff and now actually it was just reflecting the real people and kind of um and kicking up or punching up whatever the phrase is um to those who were sat, who sat in the front row and, and one of the crucial things they did is they actually they broke the fourth wall that was a, a big thing so the characters would address the audience directly in the way that stand-ups do today. That's incredible. And that's kind of one of the key ways. It's basically helped shape the idea of stand-up. If it wasn't for this type of comedic play where they spoke to the audience, stand-up probably wouldn't exist. This, this was at the very beginning of that type of humour. Amazing, really. Someone said to me, God, it's amazing that device in Fleabag where she talks to the camera. They're doing it in ancient Greece, yeah. mate. <laughs> <laughs> this is thousands of years old as a device. Yeah. Fleabag's very good, though, just to be clear. It's excellent. <laughs> Not enough fart jokes for them for it to clear up in ancient Greece, I'll say that much. Where was her phallus? But aside from, uh, aside from fart jokes and all that sort of stuff, Greeks like to have a laugh in another way. Um, Pythagoras, do you know, remember Pythagoras, what he was famous for? Let's see, how could your GCSE maths yeah. are? Well, the, the Pythagoras' theorem. Correct. He was triangle obsessed. Yes, yeah. Of course, he loved triangles. He, yeah. loved, absolutely, he loved triangles. But he also spent some of his time devising ingenious practical jokes. That was his other big thing he oh did. Oh, my God, he sounds fucking tiresome. Yes, well, this this, this really will. Oh. Imagine going to a party. Do you party. know what? I liked Pythagoras until you said that. <laughs> Imagine if Pythagoras is coming to your party, you're like, fuck, he's yeah. going to just talk about triangles the entire time. Then he goes, have I told you about my joke shop that I've just opened? Hello. Go on, open that door. Open that door. There's a bucket of water. I can see it. You complete goon. I like. We studied Pythagoras in year nine. I've known about Pythagoras since I was about fourteen. I liked him until ninety seconds ago, and now I think he's a dick. Well, if you do, or if you did ever go to one of his parties, one thing you should never do is accept a drink from him because he designed a wine goblet that looked like a normal goblet, worked like a normal goblet, unless you filled it over a certain point, at which point it decanted all the wine onto your lap. What a twat! That was his big what? invention. <laughs> He did, he did triangle maths and the wanker cup, basically. Just the, the, the biggest sort of fuck you that you could do to someone who's bothered to come round to your house has probably brought that wine themselves and brought a nice bottle of wine. You said, oh, let's start with yours. They poured it into a cup and immediately it's just been canted into your lap. And your lap is no doubt... You're wearing a white tunic as well because that's what everyone wore back then. So you can't even go out afterwards. You've, you've got to go home and get some varnish on it. <laughs> I can't, I can, can't yeah. believe that his theorem is. We're still talk, we're still studying it at school two thousand years later, and he also invented the wanker cup. <laughs> <laughs> they should say that before they teach you about. Before we teach you about this theorem, we probably give them, doesn't he, do need to give the context. This guy was a wanker. What are you going over there? And you think he's going to talk about? theorems and then suddenly he's on all fours and sort of you're being pushed over him and all that all, all the sort of rubbish <laughs> jokes have existed he's telling you about triangles you fall asleep and then you wake up and he's put your hand in a lukewarm pint of water yeah yeah there's urine everywhere his other big one was he, he did that he invented the one where he'd go to get something out of his pocket and then when his hand came out it would just be he'd just be flipping the bird at you. you know that one <laughs> I got something for you. Have you? Oh, what's that? And they, ah, that's one of the one. that's one of the ones he does after sort of after midnight when he started to run out of ideas. <laughs> so, it was satire from the stage, practical jokes um, around his house, 
The other big thing they loved was a joke in ancient Greece. Now, you mentioned, Ellis, earlier they had a list of the oldest jokes. The oldest surviving collection of jokes comes from ancient Greece in a book called the Philogios, or the Joker. Okay, and this has been translated, helpfully, by a... Forward by Pythagoras, but it's written in milk, so you can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been helpfully translated by a classics professor called Professor William Berg. And I'm going to give you a few of these jokes, and I want to tell you what you, what you think of them, okay? Here's the first joke from this uh, ancient Greek book. A man is having a haircut, and when the garrulous barber asks him, how should I cut your hair, the quick wit answers silently. <laughs> See, I think that still holds up in a way. Yeah, Obviously, the wording yeah. isn't what you, how you'd have it now. No. But the idea of being asked, how do you want to have your hair cut, in complete silence, isn't a bad idea, isn't you know, it? Anyone who's been to the hairdresser gets that. Remarkably modern in terms of, uh, in, in, in its reference points. Um, what about this? A wife hater is attending the burial of his wife who has just died. When someone asks her, sorry, someone asks, who is it that rests in peace here? And he answers me now that I'm rid of her. Oh. I mean, that, that <laughs> could good. be straight from any social club in 1981, <laughs> couldn't it? Yeah, that is 1970s standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been on ITV. <laughs> Finally, let's go with this one here. Um, the others have been relatively highbrow compared to this. A cook with halitosis is frying a sausage, but then he breathes on it so much that he transforms it into a turd. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised they had halitosis. They diagnosed that. Turning a sausage. I didn't know they had sausages. No. Well. Turning a sausage into a turd is a sort of... By breathing yeah. on it. I get that. Yes. Yeah, so, this comedy in ancient Greece, its various forms had a huge impact on the future of the art form. It found its way into the medieval world, and when surviving texts by Greek writers, Aristophanes and Meander were translated into Arabic, and then into Latin from the 12th century AD. Uh, and then the Persian poet, Ibn Hindu, compiled a volume of witty maxims taken from the ancient Greek text. So these are getting later and later, and still this type of comedy is, is being used and repeated. Um, another author called Ibn Daniel in Cairo in 1248, so this is so far after, also drew inspiration from ancient Greek comedies when writing his plays, and particularly drew inspiration from Aristophanes. And, and the structure of these plays and the breaking of the fourth wall and all these, these kind of these tricks still kind of exist today. And this has continued, this sort of, this people have used the form in the way that they write and they still do today. And that's what's wow. kind of amazing about it. What I like about this Ibn Daniel guy in, in Cairo is that he trained as a doctor but found greater fame in Cairo as a writer of shadow puppet theatre. So he gave up being a doctor and did that instead. Like Harry Hill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Paul Sinner and, um, and Adam Kay. Exactly. So, you know, people love the skills and the, uh, the art of Greek comedy so much that they will forego five years of medical school training to move into puppet theatre work. <laughs> and upset their parents. And upset their parents, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking about that, the idea of saying to your mum, you're, you're not going to be a doctor, you're going to work in shadow puppet theatre. <laughs> you're doing what? <laughs> shadow puppetry should be bigger than it is. Whenever I see that in an old, like, is it Indiana Jones or those old films where you see a bit of shadow puppetry? And you're like, this is actually really good. Yeah. But you never, you never, I never see it advertised. I've never seen it in the wild. I never see it when I'm on the train and there's like advertising Western theatre shows. Shadow puppetry doesn't come up. And it's also, um, it's a very democratic art form, isn't it? Everyone has access to shadows. <laughs> Shadow puppetry, it should be massive. Ellis, if Crane said to us, uh, I'm quitting everything, I'm going to go into shadow puppetry, 
I would be really excited. I'm like, you have found a medium that is ready to be tapped. Yeah. And I'd be so excited about what you would do with it. Also, it'd be quite exciting that the lights go down and then it's just like a tiny little spotlight. And suddenly, horror, as you realise, I've got a, a torch behind my bum and I'm wiggling it around and I haven't written a show and I'm hoping this is enough. Imagine. It's a rabbit, another rabbit. Britain, Britain's got talent and suddenly there's clapping. Where's it coming from? Oh, my God, it's coming from the judges' tables. Holden, standing ovation. Cowell, standing ovation. Walliams, standing ovation. This is it. He's been doing the clubs for years. (laughs) We are going to stay in the ancient world. I am going to be talking about comedy uh, in ancient Egypt. The ancient Egyptians were so obsessed with comedy that they elevated the comedian to the status of a god. Yes, please. Oh, wow. Bess had many different roles in Egyptian religion, whether as the god of fertility or of childbirth or even of war. But it is their status as the god of humour and of comedy that matters here. So you'd think, you know, if if the uh, if there are gods of comedy or god of comedy, the jokes must be pretty good. Well, the Romans didn't think so. When they conquered Egypt, they got so fed up with laughter and jokes aimed at judges and poor decisions that they banned Egyptian lawyers from the court altogether. One Roman poet even said that Egyptians are twisted and bitter people with a sense of humour. So clearly... In ancient Egypt, comedy and comedians, they they were quite valued members of society. It was quite a valued thing, comedy. So, you know, you're probably wondering what passed for an ancient Egyptian joke. Yeah. Well, it seems that observational comedy, particularly wry observations about the physical size of the great and the the good, that was the mainstay of their humour. So today, you know, I mean, this still happens. I mean, I think certainly in, in alternative comedy, there's an enormous backlash against... Uh, body shaming and things. But you still, like, obviously you're going back a, a while, but there was characters like um, Fat Bastard in in Austin Powers and there's the comic book guy in The Simpsons and stuff. But if you look on the walls of, of the ancient tombs of Egypt, those jokes haven't changed an enormous amount. So f- fat people in that context were always the rich and the powerful. But, you know, it's thousands of years ago, so... So it's a bit like Spitting Image. Oh, look at that guy. Let's pick something out of his character. Like, the John Major, he looks dead. The John Major thing was incredible, wasn't it? It completely altered the way people saw the Prime Minister. Him just as this grey being eating peas with his wife in silence. Was it Douglas Hurd who had the ice cream on his head? Oh, yeah. That Conservative cabinet of the kind yeah, of the, yeah. 90, the late early 80s, 90s, early 90s. right. They were all just such characters. The, the ancient Egyptians would have torn them to shreds. But, like... Major was he became the pea guy, and he'd never mentioned peas. See, I, I didn't have a TV till I was fourteen, so this this pea so stuff is completely out. new. To, I was outside whittling in my garden. I have no idea about this pea thing. But I, I, I feel I've missed out. The rest of Britain, they were all laughing at John Major eating peas. It was absolutely massive. <laughs> in a way that I I can't imagine comedy now having the same sort of impact. So, so they would. So, even on the walls in hieroglyph, hieroglyphics, they are they're doing images of people, physical jokes about people. Are they? Wow! In the temple of Hatshepsut, um, which is near Luxor, there's a relief 
And so the queen, the king and queen of Punt, local rulers who have come out to greet the Egyptians as they arrive. And this image is regarded as a good indication of Egyptian uh, observational comedy, a good example. So the king is shown as a skinny individual with a narrow, with narrow waist and weak arms, but his wife is of rather more substantial proportions. So, you, you know, um, academics have been studying this. They're thinking, is it a treatment of power, a mocking of foreigners, or is it just a funny, quite simple, little and large situation, which they thought, well, that's funny. Let's let, let, let's put that down in stone. Or is yeah. it social commentary? Is it actually much more basic than that? Because throughout- that's a really good point, actually, Ellis. You just you have to be confident in a joke to chisel it into a wall. Because <laughs> yeah. that is going to be around forever. <laughs> So you have to really back yourself that, no, this is the punchline I'm going with. Because it's going to take me a day to write the punchline for a start and then it'll be for et- there for eternity. I have, I've never been confident enough in anything to chisel it into a wall. <laughs> Would you chisel some kind of self-deprecating thing afterwards which sort of slightly undercuts the joke and suggests you weren't really behind it in the first place? Yeah, this was a sort of Friday 5pm joke, really. We all, were, we all want to go to the pub. We've all had enough... <laughs> I like the idea, I like I like the idea that it's like uh, that could be like the way you would host a breakfast morning radio show in ancient Egypt would just be chiseling stuff into the walls to read at a certain time of day you'd have to do that every morning in the absence of FM radio you would just chisel out your uh, your 3 hour broadcast if it didn't if it didn't work you'd be so depressed yeah i chiseled that i also imagine they kept the stuff quite broad uh, in a way that it would not age too badly. I hope it wasn't sort of too topical that you'd go back two weeks later and go, I don't, that's lost some of its resonance now. I mean, I mean it's going <laughs> a year later, you go, I don't, I don't even remember who this, that was. That's this kind of- is absolutely fascinating to me because comedy obviously is meant to be zeitgeisty. It's meant to reflect the time. And so as a consequence, I think a lot of comedy can, can date quite badly. Uh, different to other art forms, actually. And um, Obviously, that's not true, and there'll be listeners to this podcast who are saying, yeah, well, I still love Faulty Towers, I still love Blackadder, I still love Hancock's Half Hour, those things are often 60 years old or whatever. The Goon Show. And that is true, of course, of course it's true. But if you took, say, all of the comedy output from British television in 1977, so that would include a couple of classic shows, there'd probably be stuff like Porridge would be on and Faulty Towers, as I mentioned already, but a lot of it would be crap by today's standards. And the references would have dated. Like, I used to really love Not the Nine O'Clock News, but the thing with Not, not the Nine O'Clock News, it's, it's, it's unrepeatable because it's, it's so based on the cabinet of the time. You just So few people would get the references. Yes. Yeah. So they did make compilations of the sketches that weren't topical. And they, so I had them on video when I was a student. I found them really funny. But the stuff about Willie Whitelaw... I mean, it's just it's just so unlikely <laughs> that people are like, oh, yeah, I remember Willie Whitelaw. Yeah, he was, he was in, 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 in Thatcher's first cabinet. Willie, this is a great routine about Willie Whitelaw. It's just not going to happen. So, yes, yeah, so, so I think comedy, obviously, is it, it has to be quite zeitgeisty, which is why it means more to some people than other art forms, I think. But then it does it does date quite badly. I'm imagining also a situation to go back to the hieroglyphic and chipping it into the wall of when you first bring a crowd of people in to look at it and it doesn't get a laugh. 
and it just says 20 Egyptian members of the royal family completely straight faced and you're like oh no I should have tested this I should have tested this in a smaller a smaller room beforehand in the temple of the overseer of the priests at uh, Thebes a panel shows an overseer and four porters who are carrying jugs of wine to the storehouse when they get there they find the storehouse keepers fallen asleep on the job, but make this discovery only after one of the porters has knocked loudly on the door. So soon, everyone has got something to say. Now, as a sort of setup, you you think, well, this is great. This is an exact. It's basically an excuse, or so it's just an opportunity to get sort of six or seven punchlines in, right? Yeah. Overseer, hurry up! It's getting hot out here in the sun. First porter, the load's getting heavy. Second porter, <laughs> that's for damn sure. I don't think he's really adding enough. Second porter. <laughs> I don't think he's a fully rounded character, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think it worked on his backstory. Fourth, fourth porter, the storekeeper is asleep. Third porter, he's just drunk on the wine. Storekeeper, no, 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 I haven't been sleeping at all. You know, right, okay, now, what does that mean? Well, in a sense, it's sort of age-old skit on who does the real work around here. And that mm. is an, that's an ancient sort of um, topic for Joe, on the laziness of those with cushy jobs and the boredom of being a watchman. So it kind of, st- you have to unpick it a bit, but you can see how it still works as humour to an extent. Because those, you know, labourers still exist and people still have easy jobs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you would, the, the the sort of, at the heart of it, you think you could probably get something quite funny out of that. It's just because it was written by someone 2,000 years ago. It's It needs a little tidying up, I would say. If the, if those jugs of wine were then decanted into one of into Pythagoras's hilarious mugs, <laughs> then you get a good laugh. Now, one thing I found really in- interesting is uh, the use of anthropomorphic animals in place of humans, which is still immensely popular. People love that stuff. Uh, these often appeared on jars or another everyday pottery. Um, animals play musical instruments. Cats and mice as substitutes for real-life armies. Dogs having a game of pool. <laughs> The absolute classic, one of the greatest works of art. I'm, I'm going I'm to buy one right now on Amazon. I think I need that in the house. <laughs> My uncle had that in his like in his house when I was a kid. I didn't realise it was so famous. <laughs> like, I think everyone had it yeah. at some point. And it's so mad as well. It's so mad that that artist happened across that scene as well. It's so crazy. <laughs> if you think that's what's most mind blowing. So yeah, there are there are definitely. Yeah, it's 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 recognizable humor to people today. I'm going to talk about comedy in the Soviet Union. Now obviously authoritarian totalitarian regime, not a hot not an immediately doesn't strike me as the kind of place that would be a hotbed of comedy. And I think it's funny with those kind of regimes when you look at like the Nazis and obviously Mussolini the baddies in the Second World War, essentially. It comes from the top, doesn't it? The leaders don't look like a laugh. No. You know, Stalin is not a laugh. And that kind of bleed. I feel like that bleeds down into society. There was such risk associated, especially with satire. And I just don't think I've got it in me to make jokes in a situation where I could end up dying for it. (laughs) Oh, let, let me just explain that. Poking fun at the Soviet Union, in the Soviet Union... It was an incredibly dangerous pastime. Article 58 of the Soviet Russian Penal Code put into law that anti-Soviet propaganda, of which anti-Soviet jokes very much counts, that could result in the death penalty. Fucking hell. Wow. So these jokes I'm about to tell you, they could cost you your life. 
joking about the, the state and the system. You'd have to really think it was funny and worth it, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If it, if it doesn't get a laugh and then you're killed, what that was that sort of... <laughs> you it, it didn't even get a laugh. So Soviet humour is built on the older tradition of Russian humour with opponents of the Tsarist autocracy using very, very carefully chosen language to poke fun without creating a danger to themselves or to their audiences. So the whole time you're trying to you, you're just trying to construct a joke that will not get you into trouble. It's a very fine line. You're trying to weave something wow. very intricate so that you can make a joke without getting the facing the repercussions. I'll give you an example. That's incredible. So this is from a popular joke from around the time of the 1905 revolution about the Tsar. A man was reported to have said, Nikolai's a moron, and so he was arrested by a policeman. No, sir, he protested. I meant not our respected Tsar, but another Nikolai. The policeman replied, Don't try to trick me. If you say moron, you are obviously referring to the Tsar. <laughs> oh, my God, I That's feel tense. That's a ten- good gag. It is a good gag. I just feel tense. 118 years on. <laughs> But I think, that, like, I'll read out a few of these jokes, but I think that's what makes them so brilliant. They're like, you can see it's right up to the line. Yeah. yeah like, a lot yeah. of the, and, and that the way they're constructed is quite intelligent in that you're, you're probably not going to die because of it. Can I just say, I, I can safely say this now that I think we can assume the person who wrote that joke is now dead. Yeah. Okay, I think we can <laughs> safely assume. I'm surprised that made it through. I'm, surp- oh, really? I'm surprised that that was on the right side. Are you the Soviet censor? It's very clearly saying that the Tsar is an idiot. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not like kind of couched in language, which is, <laughs> could be something. It, it's very much saying that. Crane is shipping the joke teller off to the gulag straight away. Isn't he? He's grassing up. He's on the phone to the Stasi. Would you want some more? Have you ever seen Ronald Reagan... He claimed, he well, he, there's a fantastic YouTube video of Ronald Reagan telling all his Soviet jokes. He claimed to be a collector of Soviet jokes. And this one, I've actually seen this one before this research I was even begun uh, on my end. It's a favourite joke of Ronald Reagan about the Soviet system. And he says, a man goes, uh, obviously in the Soviet Union, you had to, there's a lot, long waiting times for almost any kind of service, and especially uh, very few people were able to, to buy a car. And when you did get a car, it was a long wait. So a man goes to the, the car dealership, pays his money, buys his car. The car dealer says, okay, thanks very much. Come back in 10 years. And the other guy says, do I come back in the morning or the afternoon? And the guy that, who runs the automobile shop says, uh, well, it's 10 years away. What difference does it make if it's morning or afternoon? And the guy says, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. <laughs> very nice. Well, do you know what, though? But I that got a genuine laugh out of me. <laughs> mm. So are they going to the gulag for that? No, I think that's okay. I think that is far enough away from the line that I'm letting that guy live. <laughs> <laughs> but if, my thumb is pointing up. <laughs> the thing about the Soviet Union was like everyone knew the system was relatively absurd, and so um, you know, there's, here's another here's another Soviet joke. You tell me if it, we're going to the gulag for this. A judge walks out of his chambers laughing his head off. A colleague approaches him and asks why he is laughing. I just heard the funniest joke in the world. Well, go ahead, tell me, says the other judge. I can't. I just gave someone ten years for it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe my favourite kind of humour is Soviet (laughs) humour. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Do you think people ever said that? 
when they were living through the really tough times of the Soviet <laughs> Union, go, this is awful. We're not eating enough. Family members are being taken off to the gulag. But comedically, what a what an exciting time! Yeah, it's a it's a golden age. <laughs> it's a golden. Age. They say a man can't survive on banter alone, but we're making a good go of it. <laughs> The bravery to write this <laughs> system, it's incredible, isn't it? The bravery to risk that and to have that faith in the power of satire as well is amazing, isn't it, really? To believe that it can affect change, and it can affect change. I think it really it can be an incredibly destabilising force. It kind of, it's power to people who have no power, isn't it? That's, that's a way of, of doing that. And also, that this is word of mouth, because none of this is getting broadcast. Have you got any others? These are absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I've got loads, man. We're going to keep going. So, um, obviously, in the Stalin era, Stalin also uh, he had similar asides uh, made about him. Here comes one. It's the May Day Parade. An old man is holding a poster that reads, Thank you, Comrade Stalin, for my happy childhood. A party representative approaches the man and says, What's that? Are you mocking the party? Everybody can see that you're an old man now. So when you're a child, Comrade Stalin wasn't even born. Exactly, said the old man. That's what I'm grateful for. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's good stuff. You like it? It's really good stuff. <laughs> well done, that guy, yeah. whoever it was. The Moscow Fringe Festival would be a weird thing to go to, wouldn't it? Yeah. Pravda Joke of the Fringe. <laughs> With the name of the comedian and then R.I.P. <laughs> so obviously people, I think what's really interesting is in the Soviet Union, a lot of the people that were aware that they were being exposed to propaganda and aware that the Soviet system was beginning to behave, especially towards the end, in even ever more kind of absurd ways. And there were plenty of jokes about this. A friend visited the home of a cosmonaut and found only the children were there. Where are your parents? asked the visitor. Will they be home soon? Dad's in space, they replied. He'll be home soon. But mum's gone to the shop to buy butter. We don't expect her back for a long time. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) But that is good (laughs) stuff. Robust structurally. (laughs) It's got... It's jabbing at uh, those in power. It's it's great. Also, there's there's a slight sense of the absurd, you know that that yeah. that, that your your old man who's a cosmonaut's going to come back before your mum was given for butter. <laughs> it's topical. It's a reference we all get. Wow. I'll finish with. I think for everything I've read, the funniest but most dangerous joke ever played on the Soviet system by a composer actually, Dmitry Shostakovich. Yeah. I would say the most dangerous piece of musical banter in all of history. He attempted to troll the entire system. Basically, after the Soviet Union's victory against the Third Reich in 1945, Shostakovich was commissioned to produce a grandiose symphony to exalt the Soviet people. But instead, his Ninth Symphony set out to mock the Stalinist state, and he therefore built in... Oh to this ninth symphony all manner of hilarious passages there's a bit that sounds like the march of the clowns there's a bit the, 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 there's a parts of it that just make you feel sick and there's also an incredible bassoon solo <laughs> that i'm going to play you a little bit now uh, i'll play you a little yeah. bit of this and basically this was played to all the soviet it was like premiered in front of all the soviet top brass i'm kind of buzzing <laughs> Do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like um, 
a sort of a pathetic moment in a 1930s or 40s Disney movie. <laughs> Which is, but, but that's, that's exactly what he wants it yeah. to yeah. sound like. Absolutely. And it yeah. must have been such a shock when it was performed for the first time. That's incredible. Yeah. From what I've read, people didn't really know what to make of it. Some people loved it. But there's a story that Shostakovich saw the, the Soviet bigwigs tapping their feet to the clown march of the premieres and is, is thought to have known in that moment that he had them. And uh, so eventually it was banned. They banned it in 1948. There was a bit of a discussion about whether he was taking the piss. And it was decided, yes, he was. And it was banned in 1948. It's the bravery of these people in general. Like, yeah. Look at ancient Greece... There's standing on the stage and and breaking the fourth wall, talking to these people in the front row who had all the power, basically. Yeah. Uh, same with with Russia here or Soviet Union, more to the point. It's just the fearlessness of it, and the yeah. as I say, the but the belief in the power of sort of satire. It's it's amazing, really. Would you do it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd have been the party representative turning people off. <laughs> yeah. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And you know what happens at the end of every single episode we do. We get on our hands and knees, we weep, and we beg for a five-star rating and review if you can manage it on your podcast application of choice because it just helps us with a little thing called discoverability and it helps more people find the podcast. That's all we're asking for at this point. That's all we want from you. If you wouldn't mind jumping on your podcast app, ye oldie podcast app, chuck us a five-star rating review. If you've enjoyed it, if you haven't, keep it to yourself. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>